Let us now pray. Holy Spirit, pour out upon us wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be opened to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Old Testament reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 41, verses 33 through 40. Listen carefully for the word of the Lord. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a man who is discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find anyone else like this, one in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Listen again to God's word for us. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a steward, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So the rich man summoned the steward and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your stewardship, because you cannot be my steward any longer. And then the steward said to himself, What will I do now, now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as a steward, people may welcome me into their homes. So... Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. And then he asked another, And how much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest steward because he had acted shrewdly. 
For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true to your everlasting goodness, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. And grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm through Christ our Lord. Amen. As you all will recall, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to the cross to bear the sins of the world on our behalf so that we might enjoy life abundant and right relationship with God and with one another. And as we've been hearing these last few weeks, Jesus had continued teaching along this way to Jerusalem, to the cross. And while he was often sparring with some of the Pharisees and the scribes, he shared this particular parable that we heard this morning with his disciples. And this always is honestly one of my favorite parables. And it's one I can only imagine that Jesus shared with a bit of a mischievous smile on his face as he conjured up this story of a generally derelict and dishonest but very shrewd steward. And he told his disciples, hey, hey, you all could learn something from a guy like this. But before we dive into the parable proper, I think it'll be helpful to make a few quick notes about parables on the whole. Parables constitute about a third of Jesus' words in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And personally, I've always found parables to be simultaneously incredibly poignant and also often unbelievably confusing and frustrating to understand. And there is debate amongst scholars and amongst Christians generally as to whether parables are supposed to be an easy, clear way to convey messages about God for everybody to understand, or whether they're rather intended to be a little bit confusing, if not very confusing, to outsiders, those without, quote, ears to hear, as the Gospels say, while conveying secret, memorable messages that only true followers can really understand. And we get a taste of that when we often see the disciples having to ask Jesus what his parables meant. Now, parable comes from a Greek word, uh, para, which means alongside, uh, and bole, which means to throw or cast. So a parable, it's literally a story or an illustration that Christ casts metaphorically alongside a real-life situation. Presbyterian pastor and author Eugene Peterson describes the engaging power of parables as follows, quote, a parable 
is not ordinarily used to tell us something new, but to get us to notice something that we have overlooked, although it has been right there before us for years. Uh, or it is used to get us to take seriously something that we've dismissed as unimportant because we have never seen the point to it. A parable is a way of saying something that requires the imaginative participation of the listener. Inconspicuously, even surreptitiously, Eugene Peterson writes, a parable involves the hearer. This brief, commonplace, unpretentious story is thrown into a conversation and lands at our feet compelling notice. A parable, again, literally means something thrown alongside of, to which our first response is, what is this doing here? When we hear a parable, we ask questions, we think, we imagine. New Testament scholar Kyle Snodgrass likewise notes that parables, quote, create an imaginary world that reflects reality, and their ultimate aim is to awaken insight, stimulate the conscience, and move to action. These are stories with the intent to, quote, get God's people to stop, reconsider their ways, and change their behavior. So parables are a call not just to reflection, but to ever more Christ-like, spirit-filled action. So what do we make of the parable that we heard this morning? Jesus tosses out a parable of a man who did his job so poorly that he got fired and then found a way to save his own skin by falsifying documents of what debtors owed to his soon-be former master and employer. And it seems like everybody in this parable is actually a bit off the straight and narrow. Because when the shrewd steward decides he's going to find a way, uh, find a way to move forward by trimming the bills of his master's debtors, those debtors happily reduce their bills. And the master, upon learning of it, he's not outraged, but he finds the steward's quick, pragmatic thinking impressive and even commends him for it. Uh, everybody in the parable seems to be out for number one uh, to such an extent that they can appreciate when somebody else pulls off a particularly shrewd, clever job of self-promotion. Now, the word shrewd, it comes from a Middle English word that originally meant rascal or evildoer. Uh, but in the 16th century, that word started to take on a meaning of being cunning or sly or artful or clever, keen-witted, in practical affairs. And the Greek word that we translate as shrewd in the Gospels, it's a Greek word called phronesis. And it is really a word that means practical wisdom, a capacity to discern and map out the means to get what you want, to get from one place to another. It's a word that's similar to that discernment that Joseph does. Uh, for Pharaoh in figuring out how to store up and manage seven years of plenty so that they could survive seven years of famine. Phronesis is a wisdom, a practical wisdom, about how to accomplish, accomplish things, how to get things done. And it technically could be applied to any end goal, which is perhaps part of the moral ambivalence we might associate with the word shrewd. But it was precisely this practical wisdom, how to achieve the ends you seek and to be clever, quick thinking, effective in that pursuit. That's what Jesus is uplifting as a model for the disciples in this parable. Jesus was telling his disciples, y'all could learn a lot from folks like that. 
you should be as eager and ingenious in pursuing the kingdom of God, in loving God and neighbor, as folks like the shrewd steward are in pursuing money, wealth, security for their own self-interest and selfishness. Jesus was saying if the disciples could be as effective, as quick-thinking, as scrappy, as discerning and serving God and neighbor as people can be in chasing wealth, then we'd really have something going. Jesus then further held that money, wealth, unrighteous mammon can and should be used to win friends and influence others for the kingdom of God. Jesus hits on the reality that money itself is just an instrument, a tool. And we get a hint of that as uh, that famous passage from 1 Timothy 6 proclaims that it's the love of money, not money itself, that is the root of all kinds of evil that causes some folks to wander from the faith and pierces them with many griefs. The love of money, not money itself. But a shrewd steward of money, of wealth, can use it in everyday life to further the kingdom of God. In his commentary on Luke, uh, Fred Craddock writes, quote, for all the dangers in possessions, it is possible to manage goods in ways appropriate to life in the kingdom of God. On this front, one could think maybe of that litmus test for shrewd stewardship of money being Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25 about the final judgment when Jesus talks about the nations being brought before God and the king saying to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Quite a powerful test of shrewd stewardship. Shrewd stewardship to care for those in need, that's something that stretches throughout Christian history. In his book, Christian Economic Ethics, Daniel Finn notes that leaders in the early church preached and encouraged people to abide by the following rule of thumb regarding wealth. Quote, if I have more than I need and you have less than you need, I am obliged to share my surplus with you because God has given the earth to humanity and my wealth to me to meet the needs of all. Now, where and what the line is of basic needs, what is enough on that front, we should note is something that does depend to some extent on the society of which one is a part and what is necessary to participate robustly as a community member and as a citizen of that society. 
For instance, to fully participate, to fully participate as a 21st century American, and in 21st century American life, you probably need reliable access to electricity, a computer, internet access, and the skills to navigate and use those technologies. You arguably need a cell phone, if not even a smart cell phone. Uh, and none of that, of course, would have been true even just maybe about 30 years ago. But that said, even if there is some variability to that line of what is enough, what are those basic needs, I think when we consider what is enough, what constitutes basic needs, it's also incredibly important, incredibly crucial and helpful to look out at the world around us, to maintain awareness of what so many folks around the world wrestle with on a daily basis. There are almost about 8 billion of us humans on planet Earth right now, and while standards of living have been improving dramatically for the last couple hundred years for so many folks, according to World Bank statistics, right now roughly 700 million people, 700 million people, about 9% of us, live on less than $2.15 per day. That is less than one, what one could generally get right here in the U.S. for $2.15 per day. 2.7 billion folks, about 33% of us, about a third of us, live on less than $5 per day, which caps out at about $1,800 a year. 4.5 billion people, about 58% of us, live on less than $10 a day, about $3,600 per year. You've got to get up to about $35 per day to start hitting that federal poverty line in the U.S. and about 6.6 .6 billion folks, about 82% of all humanity, live below that line. The World Bank uh, further fleshed out the reality of life in poverty with a study that they did entitled uh, Voices of the Poor. Can anyone hear us? in which they surveyed and discussed the experiences of being poor with uh, 40,000 folks who were living in poverty from 50 different countries. And some of the key themes that emerged from that study were first, that the causes of poverty were often complex and interlocking and mutually reinforcing. There are a lot of poverty traps that keep folks generationally locked in poverty. Second, that folks wrestling with poverty are acutely aware of the lack of voice and power and independence they have. That lack of voice and power and independence being something that makes them vulnerable to rudeness, humiliation, inhumane treatment at the hands of those who've got more power than them. A third aspect that arose from that study of the experience of poverty was that those in poverty often lack just basic infrastructure, things like roads, transportation, clean water, reliable electricity. And fourth, a common theme that arose was that illness is dreaded. Illness is dreaded given the way that it can plunge a family right into destitution through loss of work and as well as lack of affordable, available health care. Brothers and sisters, to some extent, everybody has got to discern within their own family or in their own individual budget 
what shrewd stewardship entails for them. And we should recognize, too, that dollars spent and dollars invested do create jobs, and work is ultimately where wealth is generated in the first place. Daniel Finn, in that same book, Christian Economic Ethics, also notes the strong theme throughout Scripture, as well as 2,000 years of Christian thought, that the ideal world, ideal world is one in which everybody has, quote, the skills and the opportunity to support themselves and their families through daily work. And that those who are, quote, too old or too young or too infirm to participate in that daily work are duly cared for by the community around them. And similarly, as some of us heard in the Love of God Neighbor class this morning, uh, Tim Keller echoes this idea around work in his book, Every Good Endeavor, where he writes that work and the wealth that it creates entails, quote, rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. But I think the question of shrewd stewardship, of following Christ in that discerning way with our money, our resources, I think it pushes us, it presses us, it calls us beyond that given economic reality that spending money as well as investing money does create jobs. Shrewd stewardship, that discernment calls us and pushes us to ask beyond that reality how we can most effectively steward our resources to the glory of God, to the love of our neighbors, to the care of God's good creation. Because we can be very intentional, very shrewd stewards about how we make and spend and save and invest and give our resources on that front. And we need to be very shrewd stewards in discerning where and how we can most effectively and directly help brothers and sisters who are wrestling with poverty right this red hot second. The world is a complex place. Disagreements about aid and development and policy, they can be confusing. And yet, in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there is a, quote, fierce urgency of now for so many millions and billions of people living in or right on the razor's edge of impoverishment. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God help each one of us to follow and to enlist that example of that shrewd steward toward the end of loving God, our creator and our redeemer, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, especially those most in need of aid. May God inspire us to steward the resources in our charge effectively and cleverly unto God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May God help us to be shrewd stewards who can discern how much is enough for us, especially for our basic needs, and how we can most powerfully bless those around us with our resources as well. To God be the glory, brothers and sisters, forever and ever. Amen.